0: Uh, so if if you do have your Bibles, we are uh, continuing in a series on prayer, and uh, it was great uh, that Paul Schuler was able to be here last week um, and preach. Since I had um, the COVIDitis, um, and yeah, I had COVID, so uh, great grateful. That's why I'm wearing my mask. I am. I've been free of symptoms. Um, for a long time, but I mean, as far as uh, contagious. So, but I'm going to wear my mask, and uh, hopefully, you're able to recognize that it's me before I took it off. Uh, but it is me, and I'm grateful to be here today. Um, I wanted to just say that a couple things up front, and that is that um, my love language and it's important that you know what that is, uh, and I might have already told you, is Words of Affirmation. Are y'all familiar with Gary Chapman's Five Love Languages? It's been out since like the 1800s. If you haven't read it, you can get it in PDF form um, online. But um, my my love language is Words of Affirmation, which is great because um, when I am trying to encourage you, I'm trying to love you. And I want to, the, my entire time here as interim pastor, I want you to know that I've got lots of words for you. Now, Problem is, uh, especially working with Pastor Wade, um, his love language is not words. So I can tell him how beautiful he is, how great his hair looks, how amazing a preacher he is. I just I can gush over him all day long, and he he pretty much falls asleep. I mean, it does nothing. I mean, he 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 has no those words. He you know. Um, so I'm trying to figure out what his love language is. Maybe some of you can enlighten me. It's you know. Oh, it's touch. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have COVID. I had COVID. So. Um, I'll get you later. All right, it's good to know that. See, that's how that's you know that's why we're together. Sometimes we we can find out all these things together. Um, I really thought it was spicy food was your love language, but because um, you've taken me for some spicy food, um, you are a foodie. So, uh, we are in a series on prayer. This is the fourth installment on prayer that Wade and I are trying to do together. Um, and so, we're, I, I was the one actually brought this to the elders, like, let's, let's talk about prayer. Let's think about prayer as a church, since we're trying to prepare for an, a new season at the church, a new pastor, all this kind of stuff. Let's pray. And I realized that prayer is a really boring topic in a lot of ways for Christians, um, and maybe that shocks you, but I think we, when I invite, when you invite me to come to a prayer meeting, I usually have other things going on. Uh, like it's it's easy to, you know, miss those. I feel like as believers. I mean, if if we're honest, I mean, maybe some of you are like, I don't know what's wrong with you, Tom. You need to check yourself with the Holy Spirit. Some of you are prayer warriors, and I I believe those those are gifts. But I think for a lot of us, prayer is a struggle. So I, I just put that out there, that even as Wade and I are trying to, from the pulpit, from the front of the church, talk about prayer, that it is a struggle. It's a struggle for me. I've been looking, even during these last several months, at how, how is my prayer life? How is God changing me and working in my times before him in prayer, and how important it is for us to be together, to pray together. Like you helped my prayer life by Sammy leading a congregational prayer, and I'm with you praying, or that there is a 10 a.m. prayer time here at the church that I can show up for, and I actually did today, and I said nothing during that whole prayer time, not just because I had my mask on and I've had COVID, but I wasn't really in the mood, but I was led by other people. So it's so important that we have the church. The church is so important. And so one of the words of affirmation that I want to give to you today um, is uh, regarding prayer, not so much, but more that as we pray for all the next things that God has for Indelible Grace Church, I want you to know um, how wonderful you are you are a beautiful church. And you're know you not all here right this second. We're not always able to be here on a Sunday, so that's why I'm going to keep telling you every time I'm in the pulpit how, as a church body, you are beautiful. Um, And that's because of Christ, who's the head of the church, right? But also, you are uniquely who you are as a church in this region, in the Bay Area, right here, meeting here in Castro Valley. All of it, you are kind. You are generous. You, you, you sing beautifully. As I don't feel like I have a very good singing voice today and I had a mask on. I was listening to your voices and you, you helped me. So please remember, no matter what your history, no matter what you've been through over the last few years, ten, however long, that you are a beautiful, beautiful church. And God is at work in you and he loves you. Of course he does. Jesus died for you. So, just wanted to give my words of affirmation, and it means that I love you, and you have loved me very, very well. So, the text, if you would stand with me, I'm going to read um, the text that I've chosen for prayer this morning on prayer attitudes, that's the title, if you flip your bulletin over. We're in Luke chapter 8, and I'm looking at just a few verses near the end, well, kind of in the middle, starting at verse 9, it should be here behind me, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, Jesus said, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you just remain standing while I pray? Father, we ask that in these few moments as we huddle and gather around scriptures that you, by your Holy Spirit, would transform our lives by it so that we might truly be your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So Jesus is a masterful storyteller. And uh, every time I read the Gospels and I hear these parables that Jesus tells, these are amazing stories. He knew how to capture his audience. He knew what to say with the people that he was with. And he knew how to get gasps out of them. And let me just say right up front that this story that I just read, if anyone was listening in the first century, that, I mean, they were, Jesus was talking, there would have been audible gasps. People would have been very surprised at the ending of this story. That this Pharisee, a tax collector, were praying, they were praying this way, that one went home justified, and it was the tax collector that went home justified. <gasps> People would have just been, what? They would have just been so surprised by that. So, Jesus is a master storyteller. Don't forget that. We get so bored with Jesus' stories. We're like, I've heard that story. I've. You know, I'm sharing it here and there. You know, we're so... But Jesus was... His stories were amazing. Just throw that out there. The The parable he tells right before this, if you have your Bibles in Luke 18, it's called... Um, well, it's called... And it's not inspired, right? It's the parable of the persistent widow is what a lot of Bibles will have as the title for that chapter, which are not in the original Greek text. But... Jesus told them this parable um, about how they should always pray and not lose heart. And I'm there in chapter 18, right at the top, starting at verse 1. Um, And this widow goes to a judge over and over again while he's at sleep at night. And she's constantly knocking on his door, waking him up to get what she needs from him. And the end of the parable, this judge finally gives her what she wants because she's so annoying and she's so persistent and she's so at him all the time. Do you know those kind of people who are just dripping faucets just constantly. And Jesus is trying to give an example of how we should pray. And you're like, "Tom, that's not the text you're preaching." I know, it's just it's the context before we get to this other gasping story that I read, but here's the thing a lot of commentators about this persistent widow parable would say Jesus is trying to tell us how we're supposed to be, that we're supposed to be this constant dripping faucet to God in our prayers. And I think there's, look, I'm not going to go against all academics, all biblical scholars, because that'd be dumb for me to do that. I can't do that. But there are biblical scholars who say, yeah, Jesus is trying to say this is how we're supposed to be to God, this persistent Keep going to him. Keep bringing your prayers. Yes, of course. Keep bringing your prayers. Keep bringing your confessions, your praises, your requests, all your thanksgivings. Bring all of that constantly. Yes, be a persistent widow. But more, I think there are other biblical scholars who would say that Jesus is trying to say that God is actually not like this judge. He's not so annoyed by us. He's not just, okay, I'll finally give you what you want because you continue to awaken me. You continue to annoy me. You just keep knocking, knocking, knocking. I'm going to do it. That's not how God is towards His people. Jesus is actually, I think, in some way saying almost the opposite of what we want to take away from it. It's, God is generous. And when we come to Him, We are those widows who are de- and a widow in the first century. Great need that he is generous. He's always awake. His light is always on. And he wants to give us good things and take care of us. He wants to give indelible grace church good things. Please be persistent in asking him. But he's a loving, loving judge and God. So, that's maybe a surprise way to think about. And there are biblical, biblical scholars here on my side and thinking that this is more showing God's generosity. Alright, so, the text for this morning, starting in verse 9, he's telling another parable. Here's where maybe if you fell asleep, you need to come back to me for a moment. He's telling a parable for those who trust in themselves that they're righteous... And they treat others with contempt. Wow. He just cleared the room. I mean, if I walked in and said, hey, I want to talk to you about a story, Uh, and the story's going to be for those of you who think you're righteous, and you treat other people with contempt, you'd be like, "Uh, I think I'm going to go check on my kids. Or uh, I think I'm going to see how many donuts are left out. You know, like... Or... How dare you? Excuse you? I don't think I'm righteous. I don't treat other people with contempt. I mean, I feel like Jesus really lost half of his audience by saying this. I mean, don't you think? I mean, if any pastor leads this way, I'm just trying to look for those of you who think you're righteous and thinking about others in contemptuous ways. like, that's not me. So then he goes into two men... So, ladies, you're completely, this isn't about you, this is two men here. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, we're sitting here in the 21st century in the Bay Area. We definitely know what a tax collector is, don't we? Plenty of taxes happening around here. We have tax lawyers in our congregation. I mean, we we know what a tax collector is. But in the first century, though, maybe we don't. Tax collectors in the first century around Jewish people were the scum of the earth. They were Jews who were working for the Romans, and they were skimming. They were taking people's taxes. They were asking for more than they should have, and then they were taking that as their pay. Y'all remember guys like Nicodemus? Or, wait, he was a Pharisee. Or, um, what's the short guy, Zacchaeus? He was a tax collector. Y'all remember Zacchaeus? A wee little man was he? I was having to think of the song. He was a tax collector, and he took far more from everyone than he was supposed to take. He He was short, and he was scummy. He was the scum of the earth to Jewish people. So you got a tax collector, scum, terrible to Jewish people. Then you have Pharisees, now, what are Pharisees in the first century? And a lot of you, you're so biblically astute. I'm talking to biblical scholars here in the room. I know that a Pharisee, they were a very small number of people in the first century. They were an ethnic kind of minority in the first century. They were ethnically pure. I mean, you had to be ethnically Pharisaical or a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. Um, So I'm reading this book right here, and I brought it today, and you're like, Tom, you are so pretentious. You're so trying to put on airs in front of this church that you're going to be here for five minutes. I know that. And actually, I'm trying to do the opposite. Uh, I've been reading this book since sometime last year that I can't remember. I've rechecked out this book four times because I cannot get through this book. It is on being a Christian by a guy named Hans Küng. There's an umlaut over. I think that's what they are. Um, He's a German theologian from the '60s. Anybody? Anybody born in the '60s in here? Besides, I know a few of you. Yeah, I know. Okay. So I've been trying to read this book on being. You're like, why, Tom? Why are you reading a book on being a Christian? You, we could talk about that after if you want. But, you know, I am trying to figure out what, what does it really mean to be a Christian? I mean, there's so much deconstruction going on about Christianity. And if you don't know that, please use the Internet occasionally or something. Get on, get on a podcast. Look at a blog. Christianity is completely being deconstructed right now as we speak. Someone is taking apart the Christian religion. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll read some, I think he's alive, I think he's, I don't know, y'all can Google that for me, but I thought, I'm going to read someone on being a Christian, and he has, this Hans Kung has about 50 pages on what a Pharisee is. Because he he 's a theologian, but he takes history, he takes culture from the '60s, and he's German, he takes theology, he takes psychology, he takes so many ologies, and he puts it all together to try to whittle down what it means to be a believer and i 'm only 300 pages into 600 pages, and I was going to read a couple paragraphs about what he says a Pharisee in the first century was and is, and it was so enlightening to me because And you're like, why aren't you reading some of it to us? Well, because I've already been long-winded, and I don't want to do that. But what he says, what Kung says about a Pharisee is this. We already prejudge Pharisees because we've been in church a while. We think Pharisees are awful human beings, that they up the ante on the law. They take the law of God, and they add to it so that, you know, there's no way they can not keep it. Everyone's in awe of them. They're always judging other people. They're judgmental. They're hypocritical. They're, they're horrible human beings is the way I've been taught about Pharisees in Scripture. And Hans Kung says, no, in the first century, they were awed. People were in awe of them. If there was a Pharisee around, you're like, oh, a Pharisee. They know God's law. They're keeping God's law. They're pure people. They're trying to do their best to obey God. I could never be like them. Oh, if I could be like a Pharisee, but I'm not born that way. And I I, I just, they were the people to try to be like in Jesus' day. So, tax collector, scum. Pharisee, oh. Jesus telling a parable. A Pharisee, already people are like, oh, a Pharisee. They got to be the, they're the example. They're the exemplar in this story. So he goes and the Pharisee is like, I'm not like everybody else, and everybody's like, Yeah, you're not. You're not an adulterer. You're you're good. You're you're not an extortioner. You're you should be standing close to God. You're all the yes, yes, yes. The tax collector not looking up. Yeah, exactly, you scummy tax collector. You shouldn't be looking up. You shouldn't be near the temple. You're evil, you're wrong. Like, right? And then the end, Jesus says. The tax collector goes home justified. Ah! You know, if there was ever an emoji for the, you know, that one, the entire audience. I'm just trying to bring it home. I mean, when Jesus tells stories like this, people, they're just. The, I don't even know what to say. They're just dumbfounded. All right, so you get it. What a great storyteller! How amazing! Like great Hans, great, great theologian Hans Kuhn. Great, great Jesus is a great storyteller. Got these, you know. He he split the room. We get it. What about us? What about us today? How is this applying to your life and prayer and all the things that we're supposed to be doing in a series like this? How is this supposed to help me, Tom? Okay. All right, so you get it from the story that to be justified before Almighty God, you need to be more like the tax collector in his posture, right, that he was standing far off, that he understood his position before God, the the creator of all, the God of the universe, and that the Pharisee, you know, he, he doesn't get it, that he needs God even if he's keeping all the laws, that that can't justify him before God. I mean, you guys are smart enough to get all of those things. I don't need to bring any of that application home to you. You're like, I get it. That posture is what I need to be, not this posture before God, right? You get all that. That's great. And I'd love to just leave you there and just say, yeah, that's the application. Go do likewise. I can't. I can't do that. And here's why. Have, have you all heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Some of you psychologists or maybe if you're uh, a teacher or, uh, well, if you haven't, I have. Um, the And, and I want to tell you about it. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a psychological thing called cognitive bias, okay? And here's, here's how it works. The Dunning-Kruger effect works like this. If I went to you and let's say your field of study, um, I don't know, let's say it's psychology. Your field of study is psychology. And I went and I said, how much do you know about psychology? You would say, I know everything about psychology. I'm a psychologist. I've studied psychology. That's what I know. It's what I know. And you would just go on and on, right? Probably, maybe. Maybe. And then somebody who hasn't studied psychology, I could ask them, and they might say, you know, I don't really know that much about psychology. The Dunning-Kruger effect is this: most people, it, most people who think they know so much about a topic, even if they're an expert, actually they don't know anything about it at all. When you really, all the tests show the people who say, I know everything, even somebody who's a, it's in their field. In fact. If, if you're a field of psychology, and I said, what do you know about psychology? If you really were honest, you'd say, I don't know that much about it. I've studied this part of psychology. I don't know that much about it. Uh, so the Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias where you think you know more than you actually do. And it always tests out. This effect always tests out that most people who think they know it or think they don't, they might know way more than they express Or people who say they know everything, they usually don't when they're really pushed. So what am I trying to say about a Dunning-Kruger effect on this? Most of us think that we're just like the Pharisee and our posture toward God is exactly the way it should be. We understand that we need to have our head down. We understand that we need to have this posture that is is humble, that is not exalting ourselves. That we're not going to be the tax... Collector, or we're not going to be the Pharisee, right? We're going to have the right attitude. We're going to have the right posture. The Dunning-Kruger effect says that we're going to think as we sit in this room that we've got the right posture towards God, that we're not the wrong character in the story. We're the right one. Everything in us is going to say we're doing the right thing. We don't want to think about it any other way. Or how about this? The Dunning-Kruger effect can go the opposite way. You might think well, I, I definitely need to be like this, and maybe you need to have your head lifted up a little bit. Whichever way the Dunning-Kruger effect gets us. So Tom, what's your point? Here's my point. Instead of worrying about having the right posture toward God, is it up, is it, is it down, is it up, is it middle, is it this, is it that, we'll make a law or a rule or a moral behavior out of anything we find in Scripture. And so let me encourage you this morning here's the posture that we all need to take. Be in Christ. The posture we need to take is to be in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, Paul says 11 times in Ephesians 1 to the people in Ephesus, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. And if you today are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the right posture toward God in prayer. In Christ, whether you're bowed low, whether you're raised up, whether you're right or wrong or indifferent, in Christ, because Jesus Christ, your Savior, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, as your Savior, he is right now interceding, says Romans 8, interceding for you right now, day and night before the throne of God. So no matter what posture you take, you have the ear of Jesus Christ. So when you whisper in his ear, hey, Jesus, I'm not sure what posture I'm supposed to take right now, but I need you or I need to confess this or I'm wrong about this or I think I'm right about this. But show me. You have the ear of Jesus Christ who has the throne of God. Right. He's interceding for you. So instead of making this a law for yourself, like, okay, I'm not going to act like the Pharisee. I'm I'm supposed to act like the tax collector. Wait, but some... No, you are in Jesus Christ, says the gospel. So your posture in him is always good. In him. And he'll show you. As you whisper in his ear, Lord, I don't know what posture, I don't know what attitude, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Lord Jesus, intercede on my behalf. He will. He will church in Him. So please don't let Luke 18, Jesus' story, give you the idea that you can be justified before God because of some posture or because you're saying the words, you know, I know I need to humble myself. You can say words like that and still not understand that you are in Jesus Christ, the only one who can rightly stand before the throne of God and be justified. You're justified in him and him alone. And that should bring you great joy. You're not a Pharisee. You're not a tax collector. You are in Christ, his people. No matter how tax collecting your attitude is or how pharisaical your attitudes are, in Christ you have all that you need before the throne of grace. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for what a great storyteller you are. Lord, hear our prayers. We do whisper our needs to you as a church this morning. We have need of you, that you would show up for indelible grace, that you would be the head who loves, who lifts our face towards you, who reminds us that we are beautiful because of what you've done, because of your blood, because of your love, because of your grace, Jesus. And that's how we want to come postured in you, Jesus, to the table to partake of the sacrament. In your name, amen.